0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Friday, February 19th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is nothing more fascinating to me right now than the fight between Apple and the federal government. I mean, listen to the political gab fest today. Third segment. Excellent food fight. The Baz says it's a court order. It's not strong arming. There is compelling public interest at stake. Have Apple crack open the terrorist iPhone. Plot says no. This is like making a private company invent a device that could sow the seeds for the destruction of that company. Platz is essentially arguing it's not like asking the phone company for a wiretap. It's basically asking the phone company to invent wiretapping. So here is Will Remus. He covers technology for Slate. He's tackled all these issues. Hello, Will.
1: Hey, Mike, I'm going to solve everything with the answer to your one (laughs) question, and no one will ever be confused about this again.
0: So unencrypt my software when I ask you this, Will, should we think that either side is being disingenuous or lying in this debate, or do do they just see the world in such different ways? That's a really interesting question. I,
1: I am tempted to reject your, your entire premise, which is, that, which is that it's neither one. And I don't think either side is, is being fundamentally disingenuous here. You can take issue with, with a couple claims here or there. I also don't think they even see the world in fundamentally different ways. Uh, I think they have different priorities. And I think they have a different evaluation of the
0: risks and benefits involved here. Well, what about hypocritical? Because both sides are being calling each other hypocritical, that Apple used to always help the government and that the government says, oh, it's only in this case Apple saying, no, it's not. You're doing this to establish precedence.
1: There are some false claims going around. I don't know that Apple or the FBI, per se, are responsible for them. But one is this idea that Apple has done this 70 times before, and only now it's refusing to do this. That's just wrong. It's not true. Apple has extracted data from phones with an earlier operating system that allowed them to extract data without cracking the passcode. They've done that many times. Starting with iOS 8 in 2014, they can't do that anymore. They did this on purpose in response to the Snowden allegations where they made it impossible for even Apple to extract that data unless they have the user's passcode. This is the first time it has really come up where they're being asked to work on a device It's actually an iOS 9 device, and it would require them to do something they've never done before, which is to build a new version, a slightly tweaked version of the mobile operating system for the iPhone that would disable the security protection that prevents the passcode from being hacked. So that is new. It is not something they've done before. Apple is not changing their tune. There's no hypocrisy there, I don't think. And then there's this other claim, which is that the the government is really being disingenuous here. When the the government says, this is a one-time thing, we only want to do it to Farouk's phone, uh you know this is not about establishing a precedent you know maybe you know maybe there there's some hypocrisy there I, I mean i think you know it may also be that the people saying that in the government genuinely believe it they really believe well this this really is this is a special case just do it this one time but at the same time i mean you can see why apple would really feel like that's a slippery slope uh because you know once the government can ask apple to do it to mr Farouk's iphone what's to stop them from another one-off request and then another one-off? And more More worryingly than that for a lot of people is once the U.S. government has compelled Apple to do this, what's to stop the Chinese government from compelling Apple to do this? What's to stop anybody from compelling Apple to do this? So, I, you know, they may believe, some people may believe this doesn't set a precedent. And I just think they happen to be, to be wrong about that. There's no way around it. It, it, it does establish a precedent.
0: You know what I liked about this? You didn't get me closer to the answer, but what you did was you kind of knocked out the worst arguments of both sides who see hypocrisy or see being disingenuous in there. That's not what's going on. So it's more complicated, and yet it's at the same time more clear. Willa Remus, who covers technology for Slate, thank you. Thanks, Mike. On the show today, you think that's a robust conundrum? Well, we will break down presidential polling with 538s Harry Enten. And in the spiel, I give credit to the exciting insurgent candidates who I will not be voting for. But first, South Carolina, Nevada, Harry Enten breaks it all down for us. So in politics, we're told momentum, big mo. Sometimes Joe Mentum, sometimes Dr. Ben Carr Mentum. No, never Dr. Ben Carr Mentum. But momentum is so damn important. But is it really, how can you tell momentum from just that's the order of things that happen? And that's what I want to interrogate with Harry Enton, who is a polling guru and master from 538. You have a better, more accurate title than that, Harry?
2: I just don't want to be called late for supper, as my father used to (laughs) joke.
0: (laughs) So Harry Enton is here to break down the polls and break down how we think about the polls. And here's what I been thinking. So let's talk about the Democratic race first. And it would seem that Bernie Sanders had a couple states that were really, really good for him. They worked out well for him. But even, you know, six months ago, if I said to you, name the five states that you think Bernie, if the election were held today, we all hate that question, where Bernie would do well, wouldn't you say Iowa and especially New Hampshire would be up in the top five?
2: Of course, because those are two states that have a lot of white people, not very many people who would we call people of color. Yes. And they tend to be very liberal white liberal states, and those are the states that we would have expected Bernie Sanders to do well in. And guess what? He did do reasonably well in Iowa and really well in New Hampshire.
0: So, but right now, uh, 538 says that uh, South Carolina has, Hillary Clinton has, what, 90-something percent chance of winning? We have her
2: at a greater than 99 percent 99
0: percent of winning. And I kind of hate winning, the idea of winning a proportional state, but you have her getting something like 55 uh, percent of the delegates and him 45 or maybe even more than that.
2: Yeah, so I think that the right now her lead is certainly north of 20 percentage points. I think the lowest lead she's had in that state is maybe 17 or 18 percentage points.
0: So with the Democratic race, a couple weeks ago, I think think before the first vote but i was looking at the polls i said on cnn that uh no i was on msnbc and i said look to me and i mostly read 538 and a couple other sites i would say hillary clinton has a 90 something percent chance of winning the election and maybe i look at the betting markets too and maybe i began to doubt myself and thought it was like 87 percent, but now i'm back up to 90 am i in the right ballpark you think
2: I I think you are in the right ballpark. And let me just point out, you're just so impressive that you can't remember which network you were on. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I think you're in the right ballpark. Look, if you look at my writings over the past year, you know that I've always thought that Hillary Clinton is pretty much going to be that Democrat nominee unless something happens, whether it's 95 or 90 or 87 or whatever. Who's to say? But look, she's got a ton of states coming up on March 1st that are in the South where she is not just going to win. She's going to win big. Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia. She's going to rack up a ton of delegates in those states. So I feel fairly confident in that versus the Republican side where – Oh boy!
0: Yeah, we'll get to the Republicans in a second. Last thing I want to ask you is if on the news they tell you how many delegates each has, if they don't include the superdelegates, it looks like right now Bernie's ahead. If they include the superdelegates, my God is Hillary crushing Bernie. Do you think from a uh, journalistic perspective they should include the superdelegates? These people can change their mind. And also, are superdelegates going to be that important in this race?
2: I would not display the superdelegates and the reason simply being that superdelegates can change their mind. I would focus, especially on the Democratic side, solely on pledged delegates Mm -hmm. because that's the thing that's actually solid. Remember, in 2008, Hillary Clinton also had a lead among superdelegates. It was not anywhere near her lead is right now among superdelegates, but it was a sizable lead. And then you saw superdelegates who weren't supporting her come off the sideline and ensure that Obama won the nomination. And there were even a few that changed their minds, such as John Lewis, who's the civil rights hero and representative from Georgia.
0: We did kind of skip over the Nevada caucuses. You have uh, Hillary Clinton as a 70 percent chance of winning that. Five thirty eight does anything to say about Nevada.
2: I, I would just say about Nevada. And I believe the I believe it's Nevada. It John is. Ralston, yeah. if you're listening to me, you can correct me. But I think I've got it down. Nevada. Hillary Clinton should win that caucus. It's a state that is fairly representative of the Democratic Party. It has a good percentage of African-Americans who make up part of the electorate. There, a good percentage of Latinos. It is not, as the Hillary Clinton campaign so said, 80 percent white. It's not anywhere near that. It might be 65, maybe even 60 percent white. She should win there. As you said, our 538 models have her winning there, but by a small margin. If she loses, it would be interesting. You talk about momentum. How does that translate into South Carolina I still think Hillary Clinton will win, but what if it's a smaller yeah. margin?
0: okay, so if I've gainsayed the idea of momentum overall in the Democratic race, I think there might be some in the Republican race in, for instance, the person of Marco Rubio. I think Trump was winning and winning, and there's a certain momentum there, but it's not surprising that he's winning, but it did seem plausible to me that Rubio was rising, and he's been he was hurt by the uh, New Hampshire results to be sure.
2: Momentum is only as good as the next day's news sometimes, right? I think Rubio, if you look at those polls in New Hampshire, was rising after doing well in Iowa. And that was a clear case of where there was sort of this momentum train that built up in Iowa. And then he spurted up at the last minute. And then he was kind of spurting up in New Hampshire. And then, of course, he had to dispel certain notions. One of those notions being that he had momentum, apparently. Yeah. And that kind of just fell apart for him. But again it's only as good as the next day. And so for me, when you're looking at the polls, you do see Rubio. He picks up the endorsement of Nikki Haley, who's the governor of South but Carolina. But is she
0: popular among Republicans? I know she's a she Republican is. governor, she, but... She yeah. is
2: popular among Republicans. The Winthrop poll, which I trust in that state, had a approval rating, I believe, at 80%. Some other polls have had it 65 70 Ooh, yeah. only a 65% approval. How, how deadly that yeah, is. Yeah, after a controversial in South Carolina decision to take down the flag and a, other things, yeah. Right, exactly. She is popular in that state. Now, there's some question as to whether or not she's so popular as she could move voters, but I will say say this. There is clearly an anti-Trump faction within the Republican Party. You can right. see that. But Nick,
0: we always, we were, always knew Nikki Haley was part of it. Look what she said in the uh, State of the Union rebuttal. It's not that surprising she would endorse Rubio.
2: It was not surprising that she would necessarily, certainly not endorse Trump, but yeah. I think it can send a signal. That's true. To those who are anti-Trump and say, okay, guys, this is our guy. This is who we're going to have to crowd around if we're going to be able to beat Trump. And that's the same type of thing you saw in right. Iowa, where the Bush... Christie K six support kind of fizzled, and it all got behind Rubio. If They have a similar dynamic in South Carolina. That race could end up closer than people think it's going to end up. Although Donald Trump's still the heavy favorite.
0: Mm-hmm. The betting markets right now. There was a time when they said Marco Rubio was the favorite. I am. I'm. I can see a universe where Trump wins. Uh, would you say it's likely that Trump wins the nomination
2: now? I. I. I you know, I am a stubborn, stubborn man sometimes, <laughs> and I try not to be so stubborn. Um, But my mother would tell you that I am quite stubborn. And I would say, look, Donald Trump's chance of winning are certainly higher than they were. Any idiot would be able to acknowledge that. I am still thinking that the betting markets, I think, you know, one of them was 46 percent chance when Trump winning the nomination. I'd still go lower than that. He still, in my mind, has a ceiling ish type of thing going on. Mm -hmm. Just one quick side of a poll, the Bloomberg poll in South Carolina, for instance, Yes, his very favorable rating, the very favorable rating was in the mid-30s, which matches his poll support. But his total favorable rating was only just a little bit north of 50%. Was that that among Republicans? That was among Republicans. Okay, that's important. And what it suggests is he has a very, among his supporters, he is loved. But the people who really don't like Trump really, really do not like Trump. And that's going to be the question going forward. Can they coalesce? If they can, they got a real shot. But if they don't, Trump can rack up a lot of delegates.
0: But, you know, the other thing, the interesting thing about Trump is we always talk about murder-suicide, and when you go negative, you take yourself down and someone else down. He seems like the one candidate who can go negative on someone, and it doesn't hurt him. That's quite a superpower. I think it's part of the brand, right? Yeah. But what he could do to Ted Cruz, I mean, if people really scrutinize Ted Cruz, I mean, I hear on Slate Podcast that Trump is this sui generis candidate would be the worst ever. I think Ted Cruz would be just as bad, if not worse, because he's an actual competent guy with terrible ideas.
2: Well, I... I, I, I would say this much about Ted Cruz and certainly his election hopes in the general election. Trump is a weird guy. I, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, he's so conservative." He's not really that conservative. His second economic- yeah,
0: came out for Planned Parenthood. He blamed Bush for. He blamed George W. Bush for 9/11, and uh, there was a third major concession to liberalism in that debate. And vigorously defends eminent domain in a Republican debate, and he's the front runner.
2: Crazy! It, it, it's absolutely ludicrous. Versus Ted Cruz is really very conservative. Yeah. So the idea that Trump is somehow unelectable, but Cruz is electable. To me, doesn't necessarily mesh. I, I I could see Trump winning by five. I could see him losing by twenty, depending on how people view and what he does. Because Trump changes his mind every five minutes, and it just so happens that the people who really like him are like, yeah, that's fine. We don't care. <laughs> I think a big factor
0: in the Republican race is, and we talked about proportional voting. There are a couple states in just a few weeks that are winner take all: Florida and Ohio. Florida there was a time when we were like, will it be Jeb? Will it be Rubio? Looks like it's gonna be Rubio if things hold to form. And that could give him a huge boost because as everyone's parceling delegates, even from the SEC primary, Florida's winner take all. That could that could put whoever wins Florida right up right
2: up in first place. Right. So this is the main difference between the Republican side and the Democratic side. The Democratic side it's all proportional by congressional district, blah, 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 blah. Republican side, the rules differ from state to state to state. So South Carolina, for instance, is winner-take-all by congressional district. Hence, if Trump wins and he wins by the margin, as some of the polls right now suggest, he should do very, very well. But it is not winner-take-all across the whole state, like Florida, as you said, Ohio. If you can win in those states, you can get a lot of delegates. Big very, states, very, quickly. a lot of
0: delegates. Does the presence of Ohio keep Kasich in play, or can he do so bad until then that Ohio won't matter and he might drop out?
2: I, it's you know I know I, I, I met up with John Weaver, who's his basically his campaign head on the trail, and John Weaver is a tough son of a gun. Some people like John, some don't. But I will say that they're already going to Michigan. They're going to Massachusetts. I, it's, if, it's If Casey can do half decently, yeah. I'd expect him to stay in because he's kind of this unique sort of brand. He's the anti-Trump, as we sometimes call him at 538. Yeah.
0: Do you think that the non-proportional, the winner-take-all states will be as important as I'm thinking that they'll be? They'll really, they'll really define things.
2: I think that it depends how quickly this field gets winnowed mm-hmm. and how quickly Trump If Trump is able to build up a lead, then those winner-take-all states can be very, very, very important. But I would caution, remember, Trump does universally well across the board. That is, he does as well—he's probably going to do as well in South Carolina as he did in New Hampshire, two states that look very, very different from one another, and in fact— He has a lot of support in these northern states that are voting later than a winner-take-all. I would not dismiss his possibilities of winning in those states. So if the idea is, hey, guys, if we can just win out of the field and get Rubio into one-on-one with Trump in the north and we get him into these winner-take-all states and then we'll win— I would caution against that.
0: And by the way, let's just make a note. I find it interesting, but it's just undemocratic that Florida, hey, the states do what they want. The Republicans made a rule that any states who vote before, what was it, the 15th have to be proportional. But what if Texas was winner take all? Then we'd be talking about this as this potential gold ring in Cruz's future. It seems a little unfair.
2: Well, it is, but it's also weird because Texas is one of these states, again, just because a state isn't winner take all, it doesn't mean it's actually not winner take all. Cruz can get over fifty, that state becomes winner-take all. And then Cruz could pick up a ton of delegates very, very quickly. My guess is he's not going to get over fifty and it's going to stay proportional. But that's again why it's so important to know the rules of these primaries, to understand that the rules can change depending on what percentage of votes you get, what thresholds you get. You know, on the Democratic side it's fifteen percent, but on the Republican side, sometimes it's fifteen, sometimes it's twenty, sometimes there's none very, very weird. Yeah.
0: And the great thing is the last day to vote is
2: California. It's in June. And it could, most delegates, it could be in play. It could absolutely be in play. And we could be going down to the wire. Remember, we were down to the wire in 2000 and the Democratic side, it just so happens that there the rules are boring or some might actually say make some sense. Yeah. Um, But on the Republican side, if we get down to California and it's Rubio versus Trump, Let's just say I might be taking a little trip to Hollywood.
0: (laughs) There he is. Going Hollywood on us is Harry Enton. He covers polling, he covers the races. And you should listen to the uh, 538 podcast after just about every big vote. Harry and Nate and Claire. Claire Malone. Claire's on it. And and, Jody. And Jody Avergren. They talk about this. And you guys post it early. I mean, I need a fix right after. Uh, a vote. That's the first thing I go to in and, the five thirty eight podcast. And,
2: and I can promise you that I'm going to have a chocolate milkshake next time. In yeah. Your and honor. the
0: guy eats. The guy eats banana splits and milkshakes. You, it's that should be the running gag. What's Harry eating this primary? <laughs> it's never good. It's never cal. It's
2: never healthy. Thank you, <laughs> Harry. Thanks.
0: And now the spiel. Hell, Donald. Hell, Bernie. Yesterday, I talked about Donald Trump's fabulous rebuttal to the Pope. If and when
1: the Vatican is attacked by ISIS, which as everyone knows is ISIS's ultimate trophy, I can promise you that the Pope would have only wished and prayed that Donald Trump would have been president because
0: it's true. It's true. I lamely tried to describe the verb tenses. Oh, no. Ben Zimmer, linguist, frequent guest on Lexicon Valley, has authored the definitive text. Or maybe I should say if Ben Zimmer hadn't written it, I would have wished and prayed for a Ben Zimmer post in the language log because then not writing it wouldn't have happened. He notes that in the Trumpian future conditional, the opening sentence is striking in two ways. It requires the reader to imagine two different futures, a future in which Trump doesn't become president, ISIS attacks the Vatican, and the Pope wishes Trump had in fact become president, also a future in which Trump did become president, the Vatican is not attacked and the pope needn't have wished for anything. And not only that, the pope in future one has to imagine what it would be like to be the pope in future two. That's some good stuff. Now there was a similar attempt at copy editing that statement in the New Yorker. I got to say, those efforts leave me kind of flat. I don't like the persnickety rightedness, wrongedness of language. I kind of enjoy its complicating implications. Though, I do think the New Yorker copy edit piece is going to change a lot of minds like I have heard the PAC, grammarians for Trump, is already reporting a projected shortfall in its spring membership drive. But I want to give Trump credit, honest-to-goodness credit. Do I think he'll be a bad president? Disastrous. Probably better than Cruz. See, Cruz has been methodically pondering for years, at least the arguments about how to dismantle civil liberties and government services that I favor. Cruz might be able to execute some of that agenda, though he's clearly best at blather, bluster and blockage. But if elected, Trump, and he won't be elected, but if elected, I think he'll take a scattershot approach. He'll be stymied by professionals who know a lot more about how things work than he does. He'll probably just cause Berlusconi-level embarrassments, not Mugabe-level suffering. But he won't be elected, so don't worry about it. Wait, Mike, isn't this where you praise Trump? Ah, right, yes, let's do that. Let's give the guy credit. No, not for speaking to the anxieties of the dispossessed. All demagogues do that. For rewriting a tired and harmful political playbook. Look, maybe you don't like listening to punk rock. Maybe you think it's vulgar and noisy and without artistry but music owes it a debt. Maybe you think Andy Warhol is a cynical show-off whose major talent was self-promotion, but he showed there were other ways in the world of art. Trump's doing kind of the same thing. He eschews talking points. He talks without fear. He's not worried about gaffes. He doesn't curtail himself with every utterance. You never get the sense that what he says is focus grouped. There are so many movies. Dave, that Robin Williams movie, Man of the Year, to some extent, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. The premise is a straight-talking everyman. He breaks the rules of communication. He manages to catch fire with the common man. It's kind of like what Trump's doing. Sure, in the Hollywood versions, the truths are comforting to liberals. And in the real-life Trump version, the truth is Muslim-celebrated 9-11 on rooftops, a.k.a. that's not the truth. But this is the unmediated talk we've imagined As in most fictional comedies, there is a snob versus slobs aspect to it. And Trump, to his fans, embodies this. And in all the movies I mentioned, some of the truth-telling is railing against special interests and big donors, and Trump does do that. He actually does. Forget about the content of his speech or if he's even coherent or if he knows enough about the nuclear triad or anything. He's really made us question the role of money in politics. Sure, he has a lot of money, but he has so much less money and has spent so much less money than many of his other trailing competitors. Trump himself exaggerates the extent to which he eschews donors, but he has upended the idea that donations and political success work in lockstep. Trump has also shaken up his party and its doctrines. He defends eminent domain. He supports Planned Parenthood. Like He got so little credit for this. If anyone else had said this in the last debate, and it's fair that maybe Trump doesn't get credit every once in a while, he says something insightful, but he gave credit to the good work that Planned Parenthood does. That is a correct and reasonable position that not one of those other Republicans is brave enough to do. He also said George W. Bush's lies got us into the Iraq war and that George W. Bush failed to protect us on 9-11. He has blessedly expanded the universe of talking points in Republican circles. They said Rand Paul was going to do that. He didn't. Maybe all of these ideas are going to be abandoned once Trump gets defeated. Maybe all the other candidates yearn for attention and can't afford the gaffes. And that's why Trump is impervious to them. Actually, that's definitely true, right? Think about this. Marco Rubio's campaign was said to have been destroyed because he repeated himself three or four times during a debate. Trump called the Pope a douchebag and we're all good. We're going on. My God. Now let me say something nice about Bernie Sanders. On foreign policy, I have a test. Lots of liberals claim, hey, I was against the Iraq war. Trump claims that too. You know, that's easy if you're against every war, right? A red light's gonna be right half the time. So I look at Kosovo. Lots of lefties were against what I regard, what I think history shows, was a principled military intervention. It cost zero US lives, might've prevented a genocide. I think that turns out to be a good risk and reward. I wondered what was Bernie's stance. He was a member of Congress back then. This is from a town hall meeting on May 3rd, 1999. I found this link on feeltheburn.org. Bernie begins by noting that the government of Germany is a coalition government.
1: And the foreign minister happens to be a member of the Green Party. His name is, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I think it's Official.
0: Yeah, it's Yoshka Fisher. I mean, if you want New York accents mispronouncing foreign names, I I could do that for you. But Bernie goes on to say, My generation was brought up
1: with two experiences. The first is never again war. And the second is never again Auschwitz. It means standing up against genocide. It's a contradiction, but we have to live with it.
0: That was Bernie's position. And he gets shouted out by a member of his audience, but he sticks to his position. And a member of his staff winds up resigning over his position, but he sticks to his position. And to this day, outlets like Alternet run articles that say Bernie Sanders' troubling history of supporting U.S. military violence abroad. But Bernie was right. His logic was sound, and he sold it to his audience. Remember... Members of Congress in Vermont are elected statewide, so he sold it to his constituencies in a smart and appealing way. I just wanted to note this good judgment and good thought process. I say this because we have pre-taped a few interviews for next week, and I think next week might turn into bash Bernie week on the gist. I am, however, looking to book a good guest to articulate the opposite side. So what I'm saying is, yes, the call is out to Killer Mike. And that is it for today's show. GIST producer Andrea Salenzi is against unencryption, especially in the case of zombies. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, thinks there is a compelling government interest in making Flappy Bird just a little bit easier. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, is worried about hackers or the Chinese, demanding that he recreate the message, but with a hacker or the Chinese instead of aliens. The GIST. Has anyone just tried 4444? Four, 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 four? It's usually 4444. Four, four, four. You get nine more tries after that. Umperu, Deperu, Peru, and thanks for listening.